This is episode 17 of Functional First Podcast, where we speak with leading experts in the field of functional health. I'm Katie Yamamoto from Functional Media, and today's discussion is all about nerves. We're chatting with Michael Shacklock, physiotherapist, founder of Neurodynamic Solutions, and author of Clinical Neurodynamics. Thank you for meeting with us today. Can we have you introduce yourself? Thank you, yes. Um, my name is Michael Shacklock. I'm a physiotherapist. I trained in New Zealand. I finished my training as a physio student in 1980. And that time I became very interested in, in manual therapy, physical therapy, musculoskeletal type of approaches. I worked around New Zealand in hospitals and private practices for a few years. Then went to Australia to train with Jeff Maitland and his crowd there, his team, Mark Jones, Mary McGeary and Professor Trott, some really good therapists and, and learned their skills as best I could anyway and they were to some extent my mentors, and then just developed an interest in research and clinical practice in relation to neurodynamics. The first thing I remember reading about nerve stuff was by Gregory Grieve, and I think it was in about 1970. I was a student at that time, in, between 1978 and 1980, and in 1970, I think it was, Gregory Grieve wrote something about sensitised nerve roots and maybe mobilising them might help. And then beyond that, I got interested in nerves through a publication I read of Bob Elvey's. And about mid-1980s, about 1984, uh, I read a publication written by Bob. And that got me really interested. It was, you know, elbow movements, moving brachial plexus and nerves and things like that. And to me, that was a whole new idea of doing stuff to the nervous system compared with musculoskeletal system. And became interested in that and then went to Australia and uh, learned from people there. I learned with David Butler, of course. He's very well known and justifiably so. And um, we, we did some work together and developed our stuff from there. Can you explain what neurodynamics are? The term neurodynamics actually in a, in a biomedical area is actually quite vague. But what I'm using to describe it, and I remember in 1995 I wrote a publication where the intention was to stimulate interest in that subject, but focus on areas that I think are really important with clinical practice and in relating science to clinical practice. And for me, it's, it's about mechanics and physiology of the nervous system as they relate to each other. We know the nervous system responds to different forces with physiological changes and to, to have pain or even relief of pain, physiology is a really important part of, of, of that, those mechanisms. And in, in many of our patients and in, in most living situations, normal situations, mechanics and physiology are dynamically interdependent. So we can change one with the other. And to me, that was a very big step forward because at that time we were mostly being quite mechanical on nerves and not so much thinking of other extra functions related to physiology and also sliding and pressure changes in nerves and so forth. So for me, it's mechanics and physiology of the nervous system as it relates to musculoskeletal function. And so they're integrated with musculoskeletal system. And clinical neurodynamics would be the clinical application of those mechanisms. Are there any terms that are important to understand when discussing neurodynamics? Things like diagnostic categories, I think, are really important. Uh, at the moment, they're relatively unstudied. So, for instance, a spinal problem develops a neurodynamic aspect to it, such as a nerve root problem or dural problem. For me, it's important to develop terms that relate to those. And I, and I feel we have an interface mechanism when we're thinking neurocentrically, which would open and close around the system. So to me, that's a simple term, opening and closing interface dysfunction. Or we might have, in the neural aspect, we know that nerves can elongate, we know they can slide, 
and we know they develop pathophysiological problems. So for me, you could have a tension dysfunction, a sliding dysfunction, or a pathophysiology, depending on how the patient presents and what balance of mechanisms occur. Can you provide a layman's explanation on the function of nerves and how structure relates to its function? It's interesting. A lot of people think that nerves are these tiny little microscopic things that extend like tentacles through the body. And being so small and having the capacity to produce a lot of pain, they're very powerful. And it's a bit like if you take a tiny tablet, the, the perception is it's very powerful. And that, that's actually true to some extent, but what lay people often miss is, and, and it's partly we're not explaining to patients exactly how the nervous system moves, for instance, it's clear that nerves are like cords that tolerate mechanical force in the body. It's peripheral nerve, spinal cord, we have, we have dura and all that sort of thing. So nerves I explain as, a, as like an elastic cord in the body that moves with our daily activities, but at times can develop its issues of sensitivity where if it's, it's moved or forces applied to it, then it can become quite painful in some patients, not all, but some. So I, I kind of relate it to mechanical function, movement, and sensitivity issues. And what are the mechanical properties of nerves? The mechanical properties of nerves are, are, are quite, they're comprehensively studied now. They're viscoelastic structures. They respond in terms of mechanosensitivity. For instance, if we do stuff to a nerve, we can change blood flow in the nerve rapidly. If we take pressure off a nerve or put it on, we can change blood flow and, and, and physiology. So to me, they're so interdependent and really important. Physiology, blood flow, sensitivity, movement, viscoelastic behaviour also links to this. But if we take a nerve out to too much elongation, it breaks. Now, clearly during daily activities and most clinical problems don't do this. But in cases of severe trauma, um, wartime situations, um, orthopaedic injuries and so forth, nerves can be forced too much and they can break. So we have this sort of range of viscoelastic behaviour, but if we go too far, they can't return to their normal state and they can break. So we have that plastic range which if we enter they, the, the nerve needs to heal before it will return to its normal behaviour mechanically. So we have a range of possibilities, sliding, tension and viscoelastic behaviour. They respond really well to regular movement. If you get a, for instance a cadaver and you take off the dura looking for a spine from behind and the cadaver has a, a focal disc protrusion and you lift the dura up, the dura has a dome in the shape of the disc protrusion. So they adapt viscoelastically. And I think that when we, what we do clinically is facilitate adaptation in many respects through changes in viscoelastic behaviour. So you were talking about traumatic injuries, like stretching a nerve. How much mechanical load can a nerve tolerate? Well, about 18 to 22% elongation is what's been found in healthy fresh cadaver peripheral nerves. But the problem is that at that value the blood flow has already started to reduce. And probably around about the 18%, the, you get blood vessel damage and infarction. So even though you've got that rupture value, well before then, the ischemic changes are starting to develop. And so clinically and during daily activities, we don't exceed those values. How do nerves become injured or sensitive? What is the physiological response in the nerve? Uh, there are many ways. In a history of, um, for example, a traction injury, 
that often takes a nerve past its 18 to 20%, we think, and you get damage to blood vessels. In a really severe case, the nerve ruptures completely. But in the sort of conservative clinical area where we, where we physiotherapists operate, um, we don't see a lot of that. What we see is uh, values way below there. And then when someone, for instance, contracts a muscle, for instance, at the elbow, we know that pronated teres presses on the median nerve. And so if that's excessive, then we'll, we'll evaluate that in terms of muscle contraction. If, if it's a mechanical irritation, for instance, we know the nerve can develop inflammatory changes. So you get that sort of divergence between mechanical problems like muscle pressure, postural changes in thoracic outlet, for instance, disc protrusions can change mechanical function and physiology of nerve and so forth. So what we do clinically is direct treatment at changing force on those nerves to respond. And how about with ischemic injuries? Well, disc protrusion presses on a nerve root and produces ischemic changes. In the severe cases, they get a radiculopathy. So that can obviously produce neuropathic pain in some people. The correlates of neuropathic pain are shown to occur in animals. And what we do is try and take pressure off. We've done a clinical trial, which uh, isn't yet published, but we're writing it up now, where we, we apply techniques to take pressure off the lumbar nerve root in people with sciatica due to disc protrusion. And in the acute phase, at eight days, these people did much better than a conservative medical approach, which has been shown to be helpful, of course. Prednisolone, steroids for lumbar radiculopathy, have been at times found to be effective. So we added a mechanical technique that took pressure off the nerve root, and those people did better in disability, leg pain, and global pain rating than, than the untreated group. The research supports the idea that we're taking force off the nerve root in a situation where it's compressed. It's, it's transient, but it seems to produce carryover effects into a longer-lasting response. So part of what we do is change force on nerve. How does the nervous system respond to movement, and why is movement effective? The answer to that is actually quite complex. But what I'll talk about is a study that's recently been done, which to me is a, is a big jump forward. These neuroscientists created an animal model of neuritis and then measured muscle wasting in that model. They were able to quantify the muscle wasting, and clearly that's due to maybe paralysis or something. But one of the other things they monitored, two other things, were blood flow in the nerve during a mobilisation technique in the treatment group and they also monitored a trophic factor produced by the, the inflamed nerve that produces muscle wasting. And what, what I've learned is that when an, a muscle becomes wasted, it's not just because of a lack of impulses from the nerve into the muscle. It's not just a lack of activity. It's being told by a trophic factor produced by the nerve to get wasted. And so what they were able to do was do a neuromobilization technique to try and change this. And what they found was 6% elongation produced a very small reduction in instantaneous blood flow, and then it returned to normal when the technique stopped. The muscle wasting trophic factor did not change significantly, and the muscle wasting did not change significantly. They did another treatment group to 12% elongation, and there was a bigger reduction in blood flow, and that returned to be a slight hyperemia for a short time afterward. The muscle wasting trophic factor was only changed a small amount, it improved a small amount, and the muscle wasting improved only a small amount. But what was fascinating was at 9% elongation, which is between the 6 and the 12, there was a big difference. There was a bigger hyperemia, and the trophic factor changes were bigger, 
and the muscle wasting was much less than the other two groups. Now to me, that is a big jump forward because it gives us what we call a dose dependent response and it gives us an idea about what we should be doing with a nerve that's inflamed. Somewhere along the line, there's a percentage of elongation with a technique that really does produce differential effects. And we, we don't know exactly what we're doing clinically with what elongation values, but that to me is a start in, in the future in relation to physical treatment of nerve problems in relation to physiology mechanics. That's just one example. There are, there are others in different ways. So clinically right now, you can't determine elongation values? It's technically possible to quantify what elongation values we do during a, a, a maneuver, but it's a laboratory technique. The data have to be processed offline. It, it's not that easy, and you need specific computer algorithms to do it. It's a, it's a lab procedure. It's not a clinically applied procedure. So we don't really know exactly clinically what values we're producing. So that's a tension thing, but there are other mechanisms like sliding, active movement. There are many other things that can change blood flow and nerve and supposedly help healing. Another one would be if we're mobilizing a nerve, we might be stimulating viscoelastic changes. So even though a disc protrusion or compressive problem might be producing a lack of movement, we can slide it and maybe improve adaptation. We're not really that sure, but those are the kinds of ideas that are coming up now. And can you describe the difference between a sensitive nerve and a damaged nerve? Yes, I can. A, a damaged nerve, and I'm going to use sort of pretty conventional classifications here, a damaged nerve is one where the axons are damaged and they don't function. So if you shoot an impulse through that area of damage, it doesn't pass through the area. So they use things like electrophysiology to determine uh, the existence of a neuropathy on the basis that it produces a failure of conduction. But a sensitive nerve is one that's hyperactive and has a lower threshold to a mechanical force and produces more activity than normal. Now, there's a, there's a couple of scientists called Jeff Bove and Andrew Dilley who did a study a wee while ago now where they produced a neuritis model in the nerve and they shot impulses through that area electrically and found that the conduction electrophysiologically was not impaired. But to tap that nerve gently or stretch it gently produced much more activity than normal. And that's a representation of what could happen in neuropathic pain. So we have a difference in mechanism between neuropathy and change in response characteristics. They can conduct normally, so on electrophysiological testing they could be normal, but they might still have mechanically evoked nerve pain or pain with daily movements. They're different mechanisms, and they're not mutually exclusive. So do neurodynamic tests and medical tests, if there's a nerve condition, look at the same thing? Uh, no, not entirely. We, we kind of cluster them. So a neurodynamic test assesses mechanical function and physiological responses to physical force. And you can have a, an abnormal neurodynamic test in the presence of no abnormality in conduction. But what it shows is that, that the nerve might be hypersensitive or uh, lack movement but it being normal in conduction means it may not be a neuropathy. It could be a dysfunction, but not a pathology. So what we do as physiotherapists is look at we call function and dysfunction. But a medical approach might be to look at uh, the presence of uh, abnormal uh, conduction, which would indicate pathology. They're actually different. We did a study on the ulnar nerve neurodynamic test, and we found that we could produce abnormal response in, in people with ulnar neuritis, but the neurological evaluation, for instance, is quite normal. And that's why they're, they're quite different. 
What medical tests or subjective history may point to a nerve issue? A subjective is obviously the first thing we encounter with a patient. Uh, radiating pain, pins and needles, and numbness. They would be the, the most common reasons for us suspecting from a clinical reasoning perspective that a patient might have a neuro, neurodynamic problem. Medically, you could do radiology to see if a nerve's compressed. You do electrophysiology. You might do biological tests like blood tests to see if it's some sort of chemically driven neuropathy like diabetes or something like that. But that's not quite my area, but that's an understanding that I have in that area. So I'm a more mechanical uh, professional, of course. What constitutes a positive neurodynamic test? Mm, that's a very good question. And I'm advocating that we try not to use the words positive because that is really confusing. What we have with a neurodynamic test is a really sensitive test that if we take to the end range in a healthy subject, produces a neurodynamic response. And if we change, for example, in the upper limb wrist position or neck position, it changes the tension along the system. And so it differentiates or changes with the neurodynamic movement. So in healthy people, it produces a response and it changes with a, a remote movement. So we have a dilemma, which is we can't use the logic of a physical test in a healthy subject not producing a response. In a lot of tests, a normal subject shouldn't produce a response with a physical test. And the assumption has been if it does, it's a false positive. But actually, that's to me, that's the wrong way to interpret neurodynamic tests. They are really a pull-your-finger-back test until it hurts. And there's a spectrum in between where we have to judge whether that's normal or abnormal in terms of threshold and response. Now, when reproduction of the patient's clinical pain is used with the differentiating movement, when those two are clustered, compared with abnormal electrophysiology, the diagnostic efficacy studies show really good results. We did a study on carpal tunnel syndrome patients and compared the um, relationships between abnormal tests and nerve conduction, we've got a sensitivity rating of 82%. The problem is that they're not the same thing. By coincidence or cooperative mechanisms, these people had a mechanosensitive nerve as well as the changes in electrophysiology. So there was a quite a close relationship. But if you did the same test on a patient with mechanically evoked wrist pain, that was not carpal tunnel syndrome, you could still also reproduce their pain and the test doesn't differentiate the two because there's a common mechanism which is mechanical sensitivity and maybe abnormal mechanical function. So the problem is that we're placing the neurodynamic test in the context of a syndrome and hoping it will detect the syndrome. But that's unfortunately a bit unrealistic even though the results are quite good. It just detects for a component of the mechanisms in that syndrome. It doesn't differentiate syndromes. And can neurodynamic tests selectively load or bias a specific nerve or nerve root? I'm not really enthusiastic about that. And the reason is that there's a study in 2001 where by Klein Rensink, who's a Dutch physical therapist who did a, a PhD in neurobiomechanics, and they showed that even though you could change a peripheral nerve test here, by the time the forces got up higher in the plexus, there was a less specific differentiation between them. Now, the neurodynamic test, the basic one, generally moves the lower nerve roots of the plexus more than the upper, but maybe it's changes with shoulder position or movement and so forth. So it's like a fishing net that distributes forces. If you pull one part of the net, it tends to go to many other areas. So 
I'm not using peripheral nerve techniques to differentiate nerve root problems in the, in the spine, for instance. We probably get a bit of emphasis difference, but I don't think it differentiates. So I'm, I'm using general tests for the, this nerve root type stuff. And if it's a peripheral nerve problem, then I think we can be much more specific. What exactly is occurring in the body when you perform a sensitizing movement? Okay, sensitizing movement is an addition to a standard neurodynamic test. So if we do a normal test like this, we can actually take that further by applying more elongation to the system. And if you imagine the system is a cord that lives inside a flexible telescope, and it's attached at each end. So you elongate the telescope and the nerve gets tighter. You bend the telescope and it gets compressed on the bend. You can twist it and so forth. So that's a mechanism we're dealing with with neurodynamic tests. Now with a sensitizing movement, it's suited for people who are quite advanced in their body function and it's often suited to performing artists, athletes, sports people or someone with a, an occupational activity that's got repetitive movement and they take a lot of movement to provoke their problem. So with a standard test, if we don't find enough information, we can then add more force to the system to take it further. And so in sensitization, there are different types. The first one is just add elongation and for the upper limb, we we'll do depression, translation of the neck to the other side, and then extension of the shoulder. So we can add those to a normal test to raise the sensitivity and elongate the system more. There are other ways as well. We can start with a regional focus. For example, if someone has a neck problem and the standard neurodynamic test is quite normal, we could actually move the neck first and then do the rest of the test to focus on this region. Another way would be, for example, if someone has tight scalings, we could stretch their scalenes during a technique and then add a neurodynamic test so the scalenes are actually pushing on the nerve more. So we have different ways of, of changing a neurodynamic test to suit the patient's specific needs. And to me, that's really important clinical practice. So to that end, neurodynamics is like a, it's a clinically applied science with creativity because those mechanisms are known to occur and we can tinker with them and move them around depending on what the patient needs. Can you explain what double crush syndrome is? And I've been following this. Double crush syndrome was originally proposed by Upton and McComas in 1973. They proposed that a compromise in either a sick nerve, like for example diabetes, would change the chemistry of the nerve and some of its internal behaviour and therefore make it vulnerable to, um, to different problems mechanically. Now, until recently, there's, it's been pretty difficult for the scientists to prove its existence. The clinical type stuff would be if someone has cervical spondylosis and they have foraminal stenosis, we have an increase in number of people with carpal tunnel syndrome on that side, for instance. That's a sort of a clinical hint that there might be a relationship. And they've also done in patients electrophysiological testing on nerve roots and peripheral nerve and, and people who have had likely double crush syndrome. And they didn't find what they wanted, which was electrophysiological changes in the two spots. But that to me is not proof of lack of existence. It might be just not finding it yet. And what's recently been shown in, a, in a, an animal study is if they compress a nerve root very gently and produce electrophysiological changes and don't compress the nerve in the periphery, it doesn't change the nerve in the periphery, but it does change locally. However, when they compress the, the peripheral nerve at a very low value, they can then produce a electrophysiological change across the area of compression more easily than if they don't compress the nerve root. So they're starting to show now that the double crushing zone, well, the mechanism can now be reproduced in animals. So to me, the dots are starting to come together. I personally 
I'm enthusiastic about the diagnosis, but we have to be really careful about evidence and research. And so far, there's not quite enough clinical evidence yet, but the biological studies in animals are starting to show that it can occur. So we're getting there. We're getting there. And what has been the evolution in the treatment of nerve issues? For me, there's some big jumps. First one was in 1959. In fact, even way before then, doctors were moving nerves and pulling on them and showing the mechanical function. But in 1959, the three main nerves, neurodynamic test in the upper limb were documented. The radial nerve, the ulnar nerve, and the median nerve. Now, it was kind of dormant for a long time. And we physiotherapy profession didn't really take that on until Bob Elvey wrote a paper in the 1970s where he looked at cadavers and he tested patients and so forth and could pretty much propose independently of this other research, as far as I understand, that this test here, the upper limb neurodynamic test, it was called brachial plexus tension test in those days, was the straight leg raise of the upper limb. Now, the straight leg raise has been in existence for almost 5,000 years, four or 5,000 years, but um, this was a big jump forward. So you've got to acknowledge Bob Elvey's contribution there. And then Dave Butler wrote a book called Mobilization of the Nervous System in 1991, and that was a big jump forward because that was like mobilizing a new organ. And to me, that was, it wasn't just mobilizing nerves. It was, it was really the idea that we could mobilize an organ, the nervous system. That was a big jump forward. And at that time, I felt that we should probably expand it to physiology issues, sliding and tension, opening and closing dysfunctions with the interface and stuff. So I wrote a paper in 95 called Neurodynamics, and that's where I proposed that we should expand it into these other areas using scientific cornerstones for a conceptual restructuring of the area. And then for me, another big jump was clinical neurodynamics, which is how we apply this clinically. And more recently, my feeling is there's another big jump, which is contralateral neurodynamic tests, where we have now validated the idea that if we can move move the spinal cord with a neurodynamic test, the nerve roots on the other side actually experience a reduction in tension. We used to think that that's neural tension for this nerve root and that's neural tension for this nerve root. And if we raised our legs, that was even more. But actually, it's not the case in, in certain areas. This is clearly more neural tension, but there's evidence now that if we do the contralateral test, it may decrease the tension in this nerve root, and a bilateral leg raise might even decrease it further. I can talk more about those studies, but they're basically, we've now validated with a group in Finland, with Olavier Ruxin, who's my professor, Marinko Rade, who's did his, did his PhD in this area. We've validated with Marinko's line of research that the cord moves differently between lipsilateral and bilateral straight leg raises. And it validates the idea that the cord moves down a certain amount with one, doubles with the other, and we've also done some other studies to show that that is likely to reduce tension in the contralateral nerve root. To me, that's a big jump forward because we can start taking force off nerve roots to reduce acute nerve root pain. And that's like first aid for the nerve root. In the past, we've just applied force. If a nerve hurts, mobilize the nerve. If it hurts too much, mobilize less. And if it still hurts too much, stop. But now we can actually do the opposite, take force off the nerve root. And it's a big jump forward for first aid for the acute radiculopathy. How important is treating the mechanical interface? Critical in some cases. For example, we know the most common cause of radiculopathy is pressure due to disc protrusion. Now, it's been measured in the foramen. Transducers have been placed in the individual foramen and they know the pressure is higher than normal. And they know the blood flow in the nerve root is reduced. And they know the excursion of the nerve root is reduced. 
And so for me, if we can attack those mechanisms directly, we, we may get good results. And as I said, we've done a, a preliminary a clinical trial. We, we put people in a, a medical treatment group for acute lumbar radiculopathy, um, sciatica, and they had prednisolone, analgesics and, and activity, and the other group had exactly the same thing. And we did the opener techniques to take pressure off the nerve root transiently, and the carryover effects were really bigger than we expected. At eight days, these people had less disability, less leg pain, and less global pain than the group that didn't receive those physical techniques. And we reckon it's because we're attacking the mechanism in the interface, as you say, for that particular problem. Now, in the past, we might have mobilized the nerve, which obviously could facilitate adaptation. But if we can take pressure off the nerve straight away, I'm, I'm, I'm suspicious that we can produce a much better effect in the early phase of acute radiculopathy. And the, our clinical trial supports that. You're not yet published, but we're in the process. And how long does it take a sensitive nerve to return to normal? That is the million-dollar question. It's really hard to generalise. There are some people who might have a, a pressure problem that's transient, and that could probably take less time. But if someone has raised pressure in their foramen due to stenotic mechanisms, that is much more difficult. As I said, that's a hard problem. It's really hard to generalise, but when someone has more pathology... I think that makes it harder to, to improve. And there are other type, different types of problems. You have um, um, neuropathy, uh, neuropathic type mechanisms, which are very chemical, and that aren't always based on pressure. Uh, so it, there are different types of problems, different mechanisms, and to generalize is really difficult. But the ones with the, the burning pain, the pins and needles, the dysesthesias that don't respond to a neurodynamic test, to me, that's a really difficult problem from a physio perspective, and uh, I, don't, I don't think we have good results with those. But it's the ones that are dynamic and, and can change their pain with posture and movement that we do much better with. So that, that's like a, a clustering, if you will, of clinical features, of which I just can't give you a, de a decent answer on how long. It's, it's really difficult to say. Can you discuss that chemical irritation a bit more? Yeah, chemical irritation is an interesting mechanism. There's, a, there's some research done by Keel Olmarker and other, some other groups that did an animal model where they took off a little drip of nucleus material in an, in an animal and placed it in the epidural space. And they didn't create a disc protrusion, so they didn't really change substantially the pressure around the nerve root. But in a short time, these animals developed a radiculopathy and evidence of neuropathic pain. So there's some immune response going on in substance that leaked from the disc that produces radiculitis or in the periphery neuritis. And to me, that's a really important mechanism. That is a chemical irritation mechanism. And clinically, we might say that an example of that might be a radiology report that says there's a broad-based annular disc bulge, but it's of doubtful clinical significance because it does not exert significant pressure on the nerve root. However, if there's a fissure in the annulus leaking nucleus chemistry out into the epidural space, that person may develop a radicular problem based on chemical irritation. What are some common misconceptions surrounding nerves and nerve pain? Um, that's a good question. Common misconceptions. I think one of them is that um, we have to mobilise every nerve that hurts. For example, we know that certain clinical patterns re respond pretty well to neural techniques, but others don't. And one of them, I would say, would be the patient who has arm pain and pins and needles that is intermittent and you check the neurological function, it's okay. You do a neurodynamic test 
and it's okay. And that initially would be a mystery. Often when we look at these people's posture and movement, they're posturing and moving in a way that presses on their brachial plexus, for instance. I had a patient a while ago who had came in and she had this burning pain down her arm with, with activities, and her shoulder was about an inch lower than her other one. And I said to her, do you have your arm pain now? She said, yeah, that's my arm pain. I said, well, just follow me. And I raised her shoulder up about an inch. I said, how's your arm pain? Well, that's better. Now with her, she was using her arm. She didn't have the, the endurance in some of her shoulder muscles to keep protecting her brachial plexus. So she was drooping her arm as she did her work and that she was getting, I think, compression in the costoclavicular space area and getting symptoms down her arm. So her neurodynamic test was actually normal, probably because she wasn't compressing it as I did the test. And so for her, neuromobilization is not necessarily the appropriate treatment. It's motor control. And the myth might be, if a nerve hurts, mobilize the nerve. It's not always necessary. It, often we have to integrate it with what goes on existentially or in that patient with their musculoskeletal system. There are some common explanations that you hear when clinicians explain nerves, and we'd like your opinion on some of them. The first one is that a nerve is like a telephone wire. Um, I can see similarities because it conducts impulses, but a telephone wire is much stronger and, and nerves are much more dynamic in their function. I'll be considering explaining in terms of uh, other functions, sliding, compressibility, how we can posture and move around it. Yeah, it, it's, it's only partly like a telephone wire, and so I think there are more subtleties to consider. Yeah, I agree. That's a good point. And how about your nerve is stuck? That, to me, that's an excellent question. I, I responded to that question. There's some, a statement on the social media that was to the effect of we should not be telling our patients their nerve is stuck because there's no evidence for it. Well, actually, that's not correct. There is a lot of strong evidence, and it's in the form of at surgery, they have measured a lumbar nerve root excursion with the straight leg raise in people with disc protrusion, and it is reduced in a lot of these people. You do a straight leg raise, it just doesn't move like a normal one. They know that in that situation, the, the blood flow reduces when you do the straight leg raise much more than normal. And surgeons notice that in surgery, if they just gently touch the nerve root and, and people who have compressed nerve roots, their body twitches, their legs twitch. But if that's decompressed, nerve root excursion is returned to normal, and that mechanosensitivity can reduce, and they touch it again afterwards, quite soon afterwards, and they often don't jump. And so these people in, in the research have been shown to have correlations between the presence of sciatica, reduced nerve root movement, and mostly it's due to compression. Now, um, what we've also shown is that when you do a straight leg raise, the spinal cord moves less. And we think that's a looking glass into lumbar nerve root behavior through lack of movement of the, of the nerve root, meaning producing a lack of movement of the spinal cord. Spinal cord's not obviously the problem, it's in the nerve root in the foramen in that particular case. But the truth is, nerves can get stuck, but the question is how do we explain that to a patient who's already got an investigation that shows they have a disc protrusion, who's already been told they have a radiculopathy. So to me, we would not tell someone who's over-anxious or hypochondriacal that their nerve is stuck and they have to wait for it to, to free up. That's obviously the wrong way to explain it. But if someone knows the truth, we're allowed to tell the truth and work with it. And we can say, look, 
Yeah, it might lack movement, it might be a bit sensitive, but we can show you how to get out of that. We can show you how to take pressure off. We can show you how to move it and rehabilitate that nerve movement and improve your function in a positive and meaningful way for the patient. So to me, saying nerves get stuck isn't always a bad thing, particularly if the patient already believes it. We can meet them where they are and escort them to another place with rehabilitation and positive cognitive behavioral strategies. So to me, to say generally that nerves don't get stuck is, is error because it's not factually correct. It's just a matter of how we deal with that in the patient. We obviously have to be constructive and positive about how we do that. Okay, and the next one, when you're doing neurodynamic exercises, you're stretching nerves. Uh, that's a really good one, yes. I actually don't use the word stretch now with my patients or doctors. or I don't communicate with people in terms of nerve stretching. And it was called that in some areas quite a long time ago. What, what I try to explain is it appears or there's ev evidence in you that your nerve function isn't quite normal or there's certain aspects about it. Initially, I'm not particularly specific about it, and if the patient looks like they need more information, then I might explain it in terms of sensitivity, movement patterns, how they can posture and, and, and move around it. So I, I sort of couch it in different terms, in functional terms rather than finite terms. Function can change. If you use a finite term, then it's harder for the patient to work with, I feel. Can you give an example of how you would explain a nerve issue? A lot of it depends on what, what aspects I think are going wrong. If it's um, a radiculopathy produced by compression of a disc protrusion, then I'll explain, look, we can actually help you with this by taking pressure off. We, the evidence points to the, to the idea that we can actually transiently change that pressure. And we, we now know that sometimes the nerve gets congested and swollen, which then produces part of the problem for now. And I explain it in terms of what they can do and what we can do to at least remove that pressure temporarily and improve their ability to move around that problem and adjust. In other people who they might have carpal tunnel syndrome, you can quote research which shows that neural mobilization can help that problem, and I'll show them how to do it. So basically, yeah, just work with where the evidence pretty much. Now you use the word swollen. Yes. In hearing that, do some patients think that they have a big inflammatory response in the body and should be taking anti-inflammatories to calm it down? Um, that's interesting. Paul Hodges' group has just found out with blood tests that people with acute low back pain can have altered inflammatory markers in their blood. So there is some evidence inflammatory mechanisms are going on here. And in people with acute radiculopathy, they often have swollen nerve roots found with radiology imaging. So there's some evidence that inflammatory mechanisms might be participating here. And there are some clinical trials that show that corticosteroid anti-inflammatories can help radiculopathy. So that sort of integrates with the idea of hypersensitivity and we can show them how to move, we can desensitize the nerve maybe, take pressure off or change pressure temporarily in that area to help some of those mechanisms. I think that really integrates with a lot of movement strategies that we use. Inflammation, changing pressure in the area. If you have a swollen ankle, sometimes the best thing you can do is press on it to squeeze swelling out of the area. So that's obviously guided by clinical features and responses in the patient. But I see them all integrating well in terms of inflammation, sensitivity, movement and health strategies. And what can be done for patients with severe nerve pain in a clinic? For me, one of the most important questions or lines of reasoning that can be applied are, do you have your pain now? And they say, yeah, it's in my arm. Okay, what do you do to change your pain? Can you tell me a position? Can you tell me a movement or an activity that helps you with your pain? 
Now, clear if they say no, and you test it all physically, and there's no change, that's really tough to work with. But, if, but usually people with nerve-related pain that's got a neurodynamic element can change their pain with posture. That's a great opportunity to start with something. And I will often start with an opener technique, and if it helps the limb pain from the, the, whatever it is, that's to me a great start. And I'll show them how to posture themselves at home to give themselves pain relief. So we can give them a mechanically driven analgesic. And to me, it's a really important part of managing acute neurodynamic pain. What are some common mistakes that patients make when performing neurodynamic exercises? To me, lack of movement control. And look, some people are very kinesthetically aware and they're very good and precise with their movement. But if we show them a neurodynamic exercise, whatever it is, often they find it hard to control their movements in a way that manages their problem appropriately. So I actually spend quite a lot of time clinically actually showing them how to do the exercise, reviewing how they perform it in the clinic first before I give them the, the tick to go home and start doing it. So lack of movement control for me is important. Posture and movement, really important. There are some medical issues such as cauda equina and foot drop yes. where you should refer patients for medical evaluation. Are there any other signs and symptoms when dealing with nerve issues? There is one, a constellation of three that integrate that give us access to red flags and other contraindications and they are severe, a progressive or a, a extensive neurological deficit. If someone has any of those three features, my first question is, what's the cause? And if I don't know the cause, I'm pretty careful with them, and I might even decide that it's a contraindication, and I might ask them to return to, to, to go to their doctor. To me, that's really important. That gives us access to a cord equina syndrome, a spinal cord, a tumor in the spine or around a nerve or nerve root. Uh, it gives us that, those three things, severe, progressive, extensive, neurological deficit, gives us access to all to a lot of contraindications. So if I had one big one, it would be that. How common are neurogenic disorders? That's a good question. The short answer is I have no idea. Uh, carpal tunnel syndrome is extremely common. Nerve root problems are a really common low back problem. The, 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 the incidence is high. I can't give you exact figures, but they're really common problems. But if we just step back and talk about neurodynamics, if we did a prevalence study on a regular musculoskeletal clinic that receives patients with sprained ankles, back pain, neck pain, headache, ankle, knees, hips, that sort of stuff, I don't reckon it would be 50%. So we did a neurodynamic test on all these people and accurately included or excluded neurodynamic problems in these people. I reckon it would be between 15 and 40%. On a high, big week, 40, 30, and a low week, 15 or slightly below. But I don't believe that's a majority of musculoskeletal problems, but it's still a big group. What questions are you hoping that future research will help answer? Oh, I think in the end we need clinical efficacy trials. That, that to me is a big one. Although the problem with them is it's hard to do them in a way that matches the right patient problem with the right technique. And there are studies there where you know they do a, a specific technique on a chronic generalized problem and don't show an effect. And unfortunately, we generalize from those studies and make the mistake of, 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 of thinking that a technique doesn't have the capacity to produce an improvement. In our study, uh, the clinical trial on sciatica patients, these people were put in hospital for eight days. Now, you don't normally put people in hospital for sciatica, but the, what it allowed us to do was control what happened. 
Now that meant they didn't go home and they didn't have an hour commute in their car. They didn't pick up the kids. They didn't walk the dog. They didn't, didn't work. So th that study has limited application because it was more controlled than real life. We're not saying that it's a therapeutic efficacy trial. We're saying it's a test to see if the technique has the capacity to produce an improvement. And the answer of that was a resounding yes. Then we would take it into a much more realistic situation. And if it didn't work, why? Is it something the patient is doing at home that's compromising the effect of the technique? And then we go into home management strategies as a, as a solution. But what often happens is these techniques are put into a challenging situation, don't show an effect, so the error of reasoning is that they don't have the capacity to produce an improvement. But often they do. It's what happens after that that needs controlling in many respects. So for me, higher quality cl clinical trials that place the technique in its appropriate context to me is a big step forward and it's, I must say it's really difficult to do. Expensive and difficult, but that's what we need. And lastly, where can people find out more about you? Oh, we have a website called neurodynamicsolutions.com. We have resources there. You can contact us through the website. We've also got a, web, a Facebook site called Neurodynamic Solutions and um, Twitter at Neurodynamics and Instagram Neurodynamics. So feel free, contact us anytime. Watch us. All right. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to Functional First Podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, please give us a rating on the iTunes store and stay tuned each month for a new episode.